Welcome back to Shootside. I'm your host, Ferris Simon. It's good to be back, and I'm glad to have you back. Before we get into it today, I want to thank our sponsors over there at the Gene Source for being the title sponsor of Shootside. Gene Source, created by Dave and Becky Allen, is located in Nakona, Texas, and they provide beef cattle semen on elite sires from multiple breeds for cattlemen throughout the U.S. Yes, folks, although they are located in Texas, they ship nationwide. They're no strangers to the beef cattle industry, and they're no strangers to the show cattle industry either. Dave and his staff have many years of experience in the purebred, club calf, and commercial industry, and yes, they have raised and shown many national champions, not only in the purebreds, they they'd raise a lot of Herefords, you might have heard of Barre cattle, they've also raised several champions in the show steer industry too. Super knowledgeable staff, they know what's going on, their bulls are selected from all over the country, they fit many different needs and scenarios. You can call Dave or anyone on the team. I normally deal with Drew and chat them up about what you need and get your semen ordered. I buy a lot of semen from Gene Source. Uh, They're kind of my go-to, and especially if you want some of those Texas sires, uh, that's my favorite place to buy. Give them a call. Check them out. The Gene Source, they're on Facebook. They have a website. Give them a shout and tell them Shootside sent you. Today's guest is Mr. Shane Meyer from Stonewall, Texas, and I love this episode. If you don't know who Shane is, Shane is the founder of the Battle of the Cattle series that they have in Texas. They have several shows throughout the state. They run extremely well. The feedback is extremely good from that show series. And on top of that, he does some really new and interesting uh, different things at those shows that we're going to get into later in this episode. Also, Shane is one of the key members behind The Patriot, which was the replacement show for the Fort Worth Stock Show. As you may know, this past year, Fort Worth was canceled, but there was nowhere for the Texas youth to show their haired steers. Fort Worth's the only haired steer show in Texas. I think they have like 1,800 entries normally. And Shane put a team together and pulled off what is being talked about, and we talked about it in the previous episode to this one, one of the best run shows a lot of people have ever been to. So we're going to talk to him about that, talk to him about the success he and his family had feeding show steers. He's a wealth of knowledge. Without wasting any more time, let's go shoot side with Shane Meyer. Shane, uh, thank you for coming on the program. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Ferris, for having me. Glad to be here. So just to um, to paint a little bit of a picture to preface our conversation, and you know, based on the title of this and the intro, we're going to be talking to some about the Battle of the Cattle, talk about the Patriot that you and your team put on here recently, but to give the listeners a little bit of background about who you are and kind of how we got to this point in your life, tell us about maybe your upbringing and some of your earlier years. You bet. First of all, I was born into this. Uh, I was born in uh, 74, and my dad worked for the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. He had passed away when I was born, but my dad had worked for him for several years before that and then continued to work at that ranch. And LBJ National Park is what it's called, but they uh, maintained a working registered Hereford herd, and uh, he worked there for the next 38 years of his life and my life. And so we grew up raising Hereford cattle and uh, there for Lyndon Johnson. And then we ran Hereford cattle for a, for an old guy out of Odessa for a while on our personal land that we leased out to them and worked for them. And so me and my brothers, we grew up uh, showing Hereford heifers in the beginning and then Hereford steers. And then as we got more into involved in 4-H and FFA and showing, we advanced into uh, show steers and club calves and started showing other breeds of cattle and crossbreds and such things like that. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, be involved, actively involved in 4-H and showing. And then I got actively involved starting in the third grade with uh, livestock judging and had some really good county agents and ag teachers to help us along the way. And we had really good teams and we won state competition and 4-H livestock judging contest when I was in high school. And then the next year took half that team and and we did the same thing in FFA. We won state and FFA and got to go to another national contest. So from there, from high school, then, uh, Went on to South Plains Junior College and judged there for a little while and then just started making my way around uh, the show world, working for a few guys here and there, Bill Cody, Mark Kopis, Gerald Buck, just to name a few, and just got more involved in it. And then uh, as time went on, I found myself way back home 
and Stonewall bought a place uh, and a barn and a house and, and built the barn. And, and a, that's where Myra show cattle started. And we started uh, raising some club calves and selling some and, and going that route. Then I met my uh, beautiful wife, Tanya, and have two boys. And we raised them through the show steer world and the 4-H and FFA program. And uh, they competitively showed their entire career. And now they're at Texas Tech University. And over a decade ago, I guess we started the Battle of Cattle uh, show series, and so we've evolved it into what it is today. I guess I didn't realize the Battle of the Cattle had, had been 10 years. It seems like it's flown by. What was your inspiration for starting that? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall you having like put on a lot of shows before the Battle of Cattle. It felt like, you know all of a sudden here's these shows that you're putting on and they're high quality people like them. What was the inspiration behind that to get that started? Well, I'll tell you, it started when our our oldest one started showing and we went to from prospect show to prospect show to just to get him out in the show ring and get him, uh, you know, get him familiar with every situation and every setting. And I think uh, one of those times we were headed back from a show, the boys were in the back seat and they were asleep. And uh, I looked over to my wife and I was like, Hey, do you think they've met anybody? And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, when I showed steers at a prospect level, they were an event, more or less. We went there one day, set up, and we showed for a couple of days, and then we met a lot of people, and they were way more human interactive than they are now. And now we jump them off, and we go to one ring, show them there real quick, go to another ring, and then it seems like we hop them on the trailer and get on to the next thing. So I said, they're not as human interactive as they used to be. And she's like, what are you thinking? I said, well, I want to start a show series and have some shows and make them more of an event and and maybe deter everybody from worrying about who's judging it and who's going to win the thing as more of a, an event, what uh, these kids can meet each other and the things that they can come away with educational purposes. And let's start better educating our youth and not only the youth, also the parents and the county agents and ag teachers, what's to expect at our major stock show level. So that's kind of where Battle of Cattle started. So the theory behind it was more about the experience outside of the ring or making the experience outside the ring as valuable as a lot of people were looking at the experience in the ring. It was the auxiliary things, the extras is what you were trying to incorporate into your program. Oh, most definitely. And so luckily my wife, uh, she's way smarter than I am. And uh, she comes from an educational field and, and, and teaching. So she brought that aspect to it me with the whole lifetime in the industry. And, and I started out in the open breeding cattle world. So when the first shows I ever had experience with were the open road days where we took 20 head to the show and we had to organize and keep all that organized and neat. And our display was just as important as how we had the cattle looking. So, uh, and then she brought the educational part to it and she's an elementary school teacher. So she really knew how to, to entertain that, that spectrum of kids. So we put those ideas together. And uh, that's where we came up with. And I'll tell you a lot of things that we got, you know, I being able to show Hereford heifers, we went to a couple of junior nationals and stuff like that. So we wanted to create that kind of feel with it as well. And so we incorporated some of those things and, and trying to make it happen over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, a three day weekend and incorporate all those things and still uh, have a high quality show with uh, the aspects of a, a well-run show involved. So uh, that's kind of how all that came about. So would you say, and I've never personally been to one of these Battle of the Cattle shows, but you know, right now we're in a a time where there's a a lot of new shows coming out like the Patriot or Cattlemen's Congress. And I feel like now is this time of of flux where where things are changing and and people that actually do show are putting shows on. So I I ask you this to kind of help educate others that maybe have this uh, itch that they want to scratch like you did 10 years ago. Would you say that the Battle of the Cattle series is almost kind of formulated like small junior nationals? Because like you go to like a breed show junior national, there's so many activities for kids to network and participate in outside of actually just leading that calf in the ring. Oh, yes, most definitely. We've formulated it for a small, something like a small junior nationals and uh, incorporated that, you know, with the extra showmanship uh, practice and then a contest. And then we do uh, various things of uh, games and stuff. And then we have something that's been pretty neat the last couple of years, panel of the pros, where we asked a group of individuals that are uh, very knowledgeable in this industry 
uh, some questions and then we kind of get personal. You know, we put a, a personal spin on it and make it fun and enjoyable and highly interactive. And, uh, you know, we get the kids super involved. And then a lot of times we have the adult showmanship too, to kind of get the adults in there and break the ice and do some fun little neat things that maybe other shows don't take the time to do. But we think that that's been the, the neat thing about ours is uh, just getting everybody involved. And, and I think the biggest thing that we need to understand in this industry is we're all competitors and we all want to, and we know at the end of the day, there's only going to be one grand champion animal, but to get to that process, we've all got to come together and get along to keep this ball rolling. And I think that's the most important thing. We can still be competitors, but we can also still root everybody on. And I've always told everybody, you know, instead of complaining, and we can all make an excuse why our horse didn't win the race, but instead of complaining about maybe why we didn't win or what the situation might have been, let's just go congratulate the ones that did because they're going to be another show down the road and it might be your turn and you might need that congratulations from them. So go support them and keep the ball rolling. I love that. I think that's very valuable insight. Let's talk about real quickly proof of concept. Now, this wasn't on the cut sheet, but your series has been successful just for those to kind of illustrate outside of the state of Texas. I mean, how many shows did you start with? How many do you have now? And and have you seen your attendance grow just to kind of prove that what you're doing is popular with those attending? That's a good question. And yes. uh, So in the very beginning, we had we kind of tested the water when the boys when our oldest one very first started showing, we put on a kind of like a camp like uh, Kirk Sturwalt would do or anybody else would do. And we had it there in our hometown and we rented the fairgrounds and we made it very highly educational and all about showmanship. And we did that for the first couple of years. And then we did one at our house. And then we started we started with a real small show uh, in the Kerrville and Fredericksburg area and kind of formulated the things like that we wanted to incorporate the two judge system, the colors of breeds and, and the crossbred, you know, doing the blacks, the smokies, the reds and stuff like that, incorporate some of that stuff. And we did it at a small scale. And then after that, we were like uh, the name one day just came in my head, Battle of the Cattle. And uh, how and why it did, I don't know. I wrote I, I typed it as quickly as I thought about it in the notes of my phone, got to home that evening and showed Tanya. I said, hey, this is the name I want it to be. And so we just kind of built it from there. And of all that stuff, we could start. And then the very first year we had, I believe we had six shows and uh, we had uh, three in the summer and three in the fall and we incorporated heifers with it and everything went really good. It went smoother and better than we ever envisioned, but six shows with my wife trying to teach and still try to make a living and everything, it about did us in. So we came back the next year and we were going to and revamp the thing. We knew really quick the venues that we were at to incorporate steers and heifers. We were just outgrowing the venues really quick. So nothing against the heifers. We just concentrated on the steers and we just started doing steers only. And we just started uh, doing three in the summer. And then uh, we just kept going from there. And then, you know, this past summer we had the grand finale battle cattle. We just had one show this year, which everybody knows how 2020 was going down. So uh, we had to adapt to the situation. But on average, we do. We have been doing about three a summer and every show that we've done, the attendance has grown. We've gone as far out east as Shreveport, Louisiana, and we've done them. Uh, in Fredericksburg, Kerrville, Texas, and Waco, and Fort Worth, and places like that. So the most challenging thing about it is just finding a venue that will accommodate that many head of livestock. I'd say our biggest one was this past summer. I think we had right at 900 head of show steers at it. And uh, But, you know, normally they're average, you know, when we have three in a row on a normal year, they were averaging about 400, 450 at a normal show. So quite a few cattle to get sorted through and a lot of showmen. Yeah, absolutely. Now you brought up the two-man judging system on this on this podcast. We've had uh, Dave Geyer on before, and we've talked about the three-man panel at Denver, and everyone's familiar, obviously, with the single individual judging. You like the two-man uh, or two-person, I should say, judging system. What makes you prefer that? What are some advantages and disadvantages that you see with that uh, system? I'll simply say that this industry is very tradition bound. And anytime we bring anything new to this industry, we're all, everybody's kind of like stands back. Oh, how's that going to work? How's that going to be perceived? How are people going to accept it? I will simply answer part of that question by this. 
we've been in, in existence for over 10 years now, a decade into the Battle of Cattle, and we've had a lot of judges and a lot of really good ones and a lot of them that are my friends and I have a lot of respect for. I have yet run across one judge that was apprehensive about doing the two-judge system. So I think that speaks in volume first and foremost. Second of all, growing up in this and having a familiarity with uh, livestock judging and then being able, fortunate as the kids have gotten older, I've gotten to judge more and more shows. And now that they're not showing, I've gotten to ask judge shows all over the country. And I will tell you that being an only judge, being one judge out there, and you know how highly competitive this industry is. I don't care if you're showing steers or breeding heifers or goats or whatever. There's a lot of tough calls to make out there. And, and I tell you what, sometimes being the only person out there, that can be a lonely feeling at times. And then you've got to go to the mic and explain yourself and you got to have a ton of confidence. But I tell you what, when you go to the mic and there's two people out there and y'all both are in agreement on the top three, top four, top five, whatever the case may be, you can go there and really silence the crowd with your decision saying, hey, this was a unanimous decision between the pair of us. And this is how we saw them. And these are the things we saw. Now, I say that the downside of the two judge system, and I think it's just because it's people that maybe haven't experienced it enough. And, and especially for people that haven't judged a lot or any and have not judged in a two judge system. There's times where no matter how our calf placed, if he was anywhere less than first or anything like that, it's, it's an easy crutch to say, well, I think one person liked him and the other guy didn't. And I've judged in a two judge system. And, and I'll simply say this, that. It is a collective decision on the two judges. And if, if you're first, it's because both people agreed that that one should be first. And, I, and I'll tell you a situation. Uh, Tim Fitzgerald and I judged uh, some feeder steers at the Wisconsin State Fair a couple, three, four years ago. And uh, we had it narrowed, this one class narrowed down to about, I think, the top four. And I said, Tim, I think we need to bring that fifth one out here. He's a Hereford Mark steer. I said, I think we need to take a better look at him. And so we peeled him out and... Uh, we walked around. We both walked around him and looked at him again. And uh, he goes, what do you think? I said, well, I don't think he's quite as good as I thought he was. He goes, yeah, I don't. And he's a little out in his front end or whatever the case may be. But that kid got a second look because one person in that group wanted to make sure he he deserved to be in that position and not any higher. So really, at the end of the day, you're getting a better look. The kids, the parents, the ag teachers, the club calf producers, anybody, you're getting a better look. You're getting two sets of eyes. And when they're talking, I think some of the perceived notion is they're talking about football or baseball or something. No, I can testify they're out there talking about those livestock, those kids, and those, those animals that they're exhibiting. And I just think it's the old saying, uh, two sets of eyes is better than one. And, and I'll, I'll simply say this, I'm rambling a little bit, but it's like if you were going into a major surgery and something was wrong with you and, and you needed to go, the first thing a real good doctor will tell you, hey, go get a second opinion. Make sure I didn't miss something. So I think that mindset with the two judge system, I think it's a win-win for everybody. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that we need to get two people that are polar opposites and don't get along in the middle of the ring sorting them. But I think if you have a collective agreement between the two, and, and I like using the, the term when I get these guys or, or anybody to judge these shows, man or woman, that both of them are, you know, can work together and that, uh, both of them are going to kind of, you know, have some give and take in that. And I think every one that we've had, I've been very pleased with all the pairs that we've had throughout the whole decade. And I mean, we've gone into probably, oh, I mean, 50, 60 sets of judges through this whole thing, and they've all been really good. So when you set up your pairs, and I think they do this at San Antonio, and I think they're doing it at the Iowa Beef Expo this weekend. They have like a lead judge, and then they have associate. And I, and I would imagine that, hey, the buck stops the lead judge, whatever they, you know what I mean? Like, it, they're like kind of the de facto tiebreaker. Do you set yours up like that, or is it just kind of like you guys go out there and figure out your how you're going to work? So I thought early on that it was very important that at the end of the day, I told the people who I was hiring to judge these shows that at the end of the day, that is y'all's grand champion steer. And that is y'all's third place steer. And that is your 10th place steer. So at the end of the day, I don't want, you know, you guys uh, button heads like, hey, my decision is weighs over your decision. It is a collective decision. And I told them they were both equals out there. And I've had 
we've had no issues with it. And at the end of the day, I would say 100 percent of the judges, when they got done judging our shows, we got emails, texts or calls like, hey, that was the most enjoyable thing we've been a part of. So we've kept them as equals each and every time. And it's worked out really good for us. I will say to to build on your argument, and I'm a fan of the the three-man panel at Denver. I, I like the way that is more so than a single judge because, and you know, your family fed steers and, and has fed lots of steers and you've sold a lot of steers that, you know, these cattle, especially steers, are targeted, generally speaking, for a specific show. And these kids and these families and all the people associated with them have worked all year for this one moment. And you get beat, which you're going to get beat more oftentimes than you're going to win. It's a little bit more comforting when you had two or three people say, you know what, you just weren't quite good enough today. To me, that settles a little bit better and, and I'm, I can ride home in a little bit more peace. Look, none of us like getting beat. None of us like coming up short because there is so much effort put into these things. But there's a little bit more, maybe closure is the word, at these major shows, these significant shows where, hey, there's two educated people out there. Neither of them thought we had what it took today. I can live with that. Maybe you feel a little bit better about it because it wasn't just, you know, one guy's opinion one day. I think it's different at some of these prospect shows, at least out here in the winter. It's like, well, there's one next weekend. Well, a lot of times at a fat steer show, that's it. Like they're done, you know, um, especially in some of those northern states. So I, I do think the multiple judge system is something that hopefully this industry investigates a little bit more, especially at significant shows. That would be something I'd be a fan of for sure. Oh, I definitely agree. I think I couldn't have said it better than what you said. I, I will say from a show management standpoint, when they do get down there and and they leave the ring, I think there is a whole lot more closure that, hey, these neither one of these judges, that's where they thought we should have been was third today. And they both looked at them. And I will tell you, you're getting double the looks when there's two people out there. And I've judged in a three-panel system. And obviously, Denver got canceled this year. And I was supposed to be one of the, the judges at the Market Steer Show. So I was looking forward to that. But that didn't happen. So, uh, But I have judged uh, the show that they had there uh cattle bonanza there in richmond indiana and uh i got to judge with uh, those other two guys and and it was it was awesome it was uh it was a neat experience and you get to mark your card and and when we went out there and picked the breed champions out there we all three talked about it and then we came to a decision and, and picked our champions in reserve but the classes out there we all marked our card and i do think that works really good and i always told uh, the people at denver i think the three-person system at Denver works really well for that. You know, you know, you get a show that gets too much larger than that. You know, I think it takes too much time. But I do think shows that size, especially Denver, that makes it really unique, that three-judge system. And uh, I think that there is a lot of upside to it. And I really like the two-judge system. Anytime that I get a call to ask a, to judge a show or something and, and there's an opportunity, I, the first thing I ask, hey, are we, is it a single judge or, do, or y'all get multiple judges? And, and uh, they're like, well, what are you thinking? And I, I kind of put my, spill my case on them a little bit. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's good. And, you know, some shows are a little reluctant for the simple fact, oh, well, we don't have that in our budget to uh, run two judges. And I still think... Uh, you know, I've had some some really good people come in and judge our shows, uh, just to name a few. Uh, you could go down the list and name them, and but you could go back and call those guys or, or ladies and that two-judge system, and, and man, they're very complimentary of it. And I think I think it's the best way for the industry. As competitive as it is, we need to make sure that we got the right cattle in the right places or right livestock in the right places. I think we owe it to our exhibitors and, and all the people in the background getting them ready. So, I agree. Now, the Battle of the Cattle is historically, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a, a no-fit show. Mm -hmm. What are your reasonings for that? I kind of have some ideas on why it may be, but I'd like to hear from you why you guys operate that way. So I guess it's a, a number of different ways, but the main reason is in 1992 was the last time that we had haired cattle in uh, Houston and San Antonio. And uh, not many people know the real reason for it. Houston used to be uh, full fit, had all the hair, brought fans all over. What happened was the show and, and the exhibitors, or I guess mainly a show, 
the fire marshals. It was an issue with that, with all the uh, fans and generators and everything. And Houston, if you ever been to Houston Livestock Show, it's huge. And so 92 was my senior year. And that was the last year that they had hair. So I've always thought in the back of my mind, even though I was a senior that year, and when they made the drastic switch from we could twine them, we could paint them, we could fit them and uh, just full fit. And then we made a drastic change to slick shear. And I always thought, man, I thought there, I think there could have been a better way. And so my theory has always been, I'm not a fan of slick sheared. I think we need to fit and groom these cattle and get them. You know, it, it is part of the procedure of showing livestock, whether you're showing pigs, uh, goats, sheep, or cattle. It is part of the procedure. So I think in today's day and age, and even with the supply companies, as good as they are, I think there's still a need for the non-fit blowing show. And I don't like, really like to use the word non-fit because we're still fitting them. We're clipping them good. We can still add sheen to them. You know, with the show foam and drill brushes and stuff, you can still get their legs and their tail heads looking good. And I think it's a more natural setting, uh, not to say anything that those full fit shows are good too. But I think in, in this day and age where we are in the state of Texas, I wanted to bring to the table that, hey, we can still do it. We can still make these animals look good and we can do it on a level that backside of the show ring where we still we don't need the trim shoots. We don't need all the extra stuff that takes up so much room that our venues are getting so crowded with that it was a good combination and a, one that we could come together on and see things uh, build from there. So that's kind of the blowing show where I how we kind of arrived to that. And, uh, you know, it's been well received down here. I know that I think the Angus Junior Nationals went to a blowing show there this year at their uh, Junior Nationals. I know Alan Miller's called me a few times, asked me about it. And and I said, you know, everybody has different reviews about it. And probably for the guys in the North Country, maybe out there in California, I know the guys in the Midwest, it would be new to them because they're used to, you know, fitting them up. They got hair a mile long on those things and they got the right uh, weather for all the conditions to grow hair. But uh, at the end of the day, I still think, you know, our supply companies can still survive with blow and show. There's still enough things that you put on their hair and that are not adhesive like, and you can still make them look good. You still got to clip them and you still got to get them full and fresh and look good. So I, I think there's a lot of benefits and upside to the, to the blow and show. That wasn't the answer I was expecting, but <laughs> I do understand it. I guess a thought I had was possibly because there's so many cattle raised specifically for those slick shows down there that aren't bred for hair quality that in the summertime, I remember back in the day when I was living in that part of the world and you'd go to some of those summer shows, like the ones that had hair had a huge advantage. I mean, just an enormous advantage versus like some of those harder haired shearing cattle. Like you couldn't hardly get along with a harder haired shearing calf at a prospect show because they were kind of bald and, you can't twine a gray one or it doesn't look too good, at least in my opinion, you know, it, it, so those black woolly ones just smoked them because you guys have so many shearing shows down there. It would make sense that, uh, it would probably just kind of even things out just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree with that. I will tell you a couple of years ago, we implemented a, a slick shear division at our battle of cattle shows. And, and I did it a little different than what we're used to at San Antonio and Houston and San Angelo and, and State Fair, Texas and Austin. It was just a down shear. You could use like a P7112, like you're shearing a cow and we could leave their tail head on them. We could leave their ears fuzzy, leave their top notch and leave their hair from the knee down and the hock down a little bit like how the sheep do it. And they weren't shaved. And so that was really well received for those ones that were a little tighter haired. And in the beginning, I think they were people were real excited about it because if they didn't have the hair that summer, you know, when the first year I know we announced it, people were like, oh, yeah, that's where we're going to be. Well, it didn't take very long to know that, hey, that breed division really. And we didn't separate them by breed. We just called it a slick division. And you had to meet those requirements. Well, it didn't take very long to know that the competition did not suffer there. That it was that breed was as tough as any of the rest of them. They're like, oh <laughs> gosh, you know, what are we doing? So in that year, we had a slick shear steer getting the top five, I think, at every one of our shows that we had. So that just tells you the quality of them. But I did think that that's something that that I think me and my wife take really to heart, where we try to adapt the show to what's going on out there in the world today and knowing that, hey, there there are a lot of slick shows. We have a lot of slick shows in the state of Texas. And so well, let's incorporate something like that in our show. So anytime that I think we can do something to advance that show or help the industry or help the exhibitors or the, or the producers or anything, we definitely try to add that to our show. 
That's awesome. Let's pivot. Let's talk about the Patriot a little bit. Tell us about that experience. I'm guessing a driving factor for putting it on was the cancellation of Fort Worth. But what else went into making such, from the outside looking in, a monumental decision to put on such an enormous and important event? Well, uh, I think it was this past summer that I sat down with a few of my colleagues and, and we just talked about, you know, what if something happens this spring or this winter and something else cancels, you know, we need to have some, a plan in place. So before the cancellation of the show that canceled, I already had a kind of a plan that, hey, we might, you know, a week in February and a week in March in case something happens. And so in the back of my mind, my wife and I kind of went over things. OK, if this one cancels, this is kind of the road we'll take. And if this one cancels, this is kind of the path we'll take. So my wife and I actually went for a little vacation, a little getaway right before the cancellation of uh, that show. And we got back that night, Thursday night. It was October 8th. I remember this probably forever. And then I got up early that morning, had some stuff to do in town. And I, I got a phone call at eight o'clock that morning and said, hey, Fort Worth is canceled. And I said, OK, I'll call you right back. So I got off the phone. I called the lady in, in, at Abilene facility and I'd already had a week already booked that week. And I said, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about that that week I've got booked. She goes, OK, hey, I meant to call you. Can we move it to a different week? And I said, what do you got available? And uh, we actually had the second full week of February already reserved. She goes, well, I could do you the first week of February or the third week of February. I said, give me the first full week of February and text me all the details. I'm going to text you all the details. But I said, Fort Worth just got canceled. So we're having the steer show. And she was like, you got to be kidding me. So we went right to work right away. And I told my wife when I finally got home and she got the news, obviously. And I said, hey, if we're going to do this, we're not going to stop at every barking dog on the way. We're going to do it as the best we can. We're going to try to, to ask for as much support as we can. And we're going to try to give these kiddos the biggest and best experience that they can. And we're not ever going to look back because I tell you, if we ever stopped at every barking dog and if we ever look back, I said, we'll never keep moving forward. And so I said, no matter what hurdles we have to jump, we're going to keep moving forward. And that's what we did. And we had that mindset all the way through. I'm not going to tell you that I didn't wake up at between four and four thirty some mornings in a dead sweat wondering, boy, did we bite off more than we could chew. But I knew that what Texas exhibitors and parents and ag teachers and club cap producers and everybody involved in this was expecting. And I knew the magnitude of the show that just got canceled. It was our only haired show in the state of Texas. Probably having a senior just graduate that May and one of his reactions when Houston and Austin canceled uh, this saying, man, I just wanted that one more shot to show. So that really hit close to home. And then my wife didn't go back to teaching this year and we didn't have any kids showing. So I felt like, you know, I don't know if Tanya and I were the best people for the job, but I thought that at this point in our life that maybe we were the only ones that could get this ball rolling. And so we just started moving forward. I talked to county ages, ag teachers. How could we go about getting it for H and FFA sanctioned? Went, met with a, uh, a lot of the city officials there in Abilene and met with the mayor. And I told the lady that runs Rochelle Johnson, and she's a great woman that runs the Abilene facility. I said, hey, I want, when we release this, I want to have the mayor right there standing next to us. And I want everybody to know that we've got his support, the town support. And we want to move forward and have it done professionally. And so we knew that we had to do a lot of things. We knew we had to have a have a sale, an auction with it, because that's what people were going to be missing the most. And, and to keep that ball rolling for the rest of the kids, for the rest of the year. And so there were so many moving parts in this show. And it took my wife and I out of our comfort zone so many times for the amount of people that we had to contact and Zoom calls and conference calls. And I can't tell you how many times I got up at five o'clock in the morning just to drive to Abilene, three hour drive, just to meet with them to make sure everything was still on go. Because I'll tell you what, the whole process, there would be times where, you know, it would have been easy to say, hey, this is too much. You know, few people are bucking the system. We could throw in a towel, but our mindset never was that way. And I made sure of it. Sometimes my wife and I had to give each other pep talks about it, but uh, we just kept the ball rolling forward and we kept looking forward. And uh, the end result was amazing. It, everything that we envisioned turned out better than we when we even envisioned. And so, you know, and I think the the neatest thing about the show, there were so many neat aspects and getting all the exhibitors there and creating that atmosphere that was laid back. And, and we did, you know, some of the things that I thought 
that that show always needed to incorporate the blowing show, the no trim shoots, uh, just more of a laid back atmosphere, but still the competitiveness inside the show ring. And then turning that focus on those exhibitors and being able to bring them in the ring for our opening ceremonies and grand opening and uh, grand entry. I thought that was really neat. And the post of flags. And then we had three of the very best announcers that we could have had the great Bob Tallman, uh, you know, once, you know, so many rodeos got canceled, you know, we got a hold of him and uh, Clint Petzold's a good friend of mine. That's his neighbor. And so I said, Clint, we got to have Bob Tallman. And we got Lee Pritchard to help with it. And then we got Kent Jackie. And those three made an awful good trio of team in the announcing. And and Bob Tallman just putting that extra spin on it. And his voice is well known all over the country. And then we knew that we had to have floor trucks there available for the cattle, for the kiddos and exhibitors to, you know, that ones that didn't want to go on and want to floor their trucks. And when it, with that auction. And so, but I think the combination of it of Ferris was for me and and you raise club calves and you're in the industry and you understand this, we're all competitive, but I told a lot of my colleagues, a lot of County agent and ag teachers that I call friends. One thing I said, we all have to come together together and get along. And we all have the same common goal. We want to build the best show that we can. And if we all come together, set our egos to the side for a second and go, Hey, we need to do this for the betterment of our industry, the exhibitors and the producers and the county agents, ag teachers that I said, if we all have that mindset and move forward, I think we'll make this a better show. And they all did. And that was the neat thing about it to see competitors out here raising club caps against each other, whether it be Colby Collins, Brandon Horn, Luke James or, or anybody, Brian Martin, all coming together like, hey, Shane, what do you need? What, How can we help you? You know, I know somebody that wants to donate or, hey, I've got some embryos we can put in a sale or, hey, I know a guy that's got, he does fishing for a living and he used to show steers and he can donate a fishing trip for a fundraiser and stuff like that. And, and county agents and ag teachers going, hey, you know, we're used to seeing this, uh, you know, from the school side, they could bring a different perspective. And we all came together. And I think if we've learned one thing, that was the greatest thing and accomplishment for me was all those people that maybe always were competitive against each other and maybe were reluctant to all sit in a room or stand together and all shake hands at a show and and think and congratulate each They all came together with the same common goal. And then we were able to move forward. And I think that was one of the neatest things to see with the Patriot. And that's probably one of the things I'm the most proud of at the Patriot that we accomplished. No, that is incredible. And and I think the overarching takeaway for me is just even beyond the show is, you know, as challenging as, as 2020 was for so many, these are the cool stories that you get to to hear that comes out of it, right? Like this is the flower in the burn area or whatever. I, I, I think this is awesome. And, and, and I'm with you. This is a big industry, but a small industry all at the same time. And there's times, and this is one of them, where even as competitors, we got to band together and keep fighting the good fight. And we appreciate all the effort that you and your team has put in. So here's the million dollar question. You've put on this incredible show. All the feedback that I've heard was awesome. Everyone I've heard from multiple people is the best run show they've ever been to. Is this something that you plan on continuing? Is it something you're thinking about? If you do continue, what are the challenges to improve? You know, and it sounds like you've set yourself a pretty high bar, but I'll let you speak to that. That's a good question. And I'll just answer, I'll start by answering it with this. If you'd have told me a year ago, Ferris, that we were going to have to do what we did this year, I would have called you crazy because I, I didn't see it. So, you know, talking to a few people like some of my colleagues, like Adam Potts and Clint Petzall and, and guys like that, and Eric Dreger, and just visiting with them and, and even some of the county agents and ag teachers, where do we go from here? I don't know where we go from here. You know, I think the best thing that we can do is maybe just wait for a second take a deep breath, finish wrapping up this with all our paperwork that we have to do and see what the rest of the spring happens. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen with San Antonio. They're in the process of going. We've got some bad weather down here in San Antonio. You know, see what happens with Houston, see what they have to do. And then Austin as well. And then maybe take a step back and go, so, okay, this is where we fit. This is what we need to do. And maybe the decision will become clearer. But the one thing is for sure, I always try to be forwardly thinking and we always think outside the box. So I really don't know. I don't have a definite answer for that because I don't know where we fit exactly. But I do know one thing that it was enjoyable doing that as a most daunting task that my family and I have ever gone through. And the volunteers were amazing. Uh, we didn't have a lot of on hands volunteers, but the ones we had were great. 
And uh, so we, we had people step up and come up and help us at the show, but uh, everybody just chipped together. So I don't really know where the future holds, but like I said, you never know. It may come clear to us next week and we we'll go, hey, this is what we need to do and this is where we need to go and that's the path we'll take. But we'll just kind of sit tight and see what the rest of the spring brings as in hold for us. We might, near the end of the season for shoot side, we might need to bring you back on for a soundbite <laughs> to actually get the answer, but I appreciate what how you responded. Speaking of looking forward and doing new stuff, you have another project in the pipeline, the Show Steer Junior National, which I think is a cool concept being a club calf guy myself been feeling left out in the junior national circuit but tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you have in store well the show steer junior national has actually been a kind of the dream of ours for quite some time and, and gerald buck i ran into him this uh december at the national finals and he's like hey do you remember a handful of years ago you're sitting at our house after working some cattle and we were eating dinner and you said hey I want to turn that battle of cattle into the show steer junior nationals. And I didn't remember it until he said that. And I said, I couldn't believe he remembered that. And he's like, I remember you said you wanted to turn it into a show steer junior nationals. And so I thought that the timing's right. And uh, so many people that show, sell and show and raise show steers, you know, this Ferris, cause you do it. We're a breed of our own. We may not have a breed rep. We may not have a, a facility in a state in a city somewhere that that's collecting data or anything on the club calf industry, but we're a breed of our own. And there's so many people that show steers out there and raise steers out there. And I think if we can all get together and create that junior nationals field that so many of these kids that show steers competitively that don't really get to, uh, if they don't show a, a purebred breed heifer like an Angus, a Shorthorn, a Simmental, a Hereford, or, or any of those breeds like that, uh, don't ever experience that show steer junior, or that junior national feel. So we want to create that. And I think there's enough people that show cattle all over the United States that I think it'll be neat to see. I'm excited. I thought Abilene was a good place to start with it. I think when the Shorthorns did their junior national there, I went there for a day and just kind of walked around and got the feel for everybody and saw that see that many people from out of state come there that far to, to watch that show. And and so right away, we knew that we needed to put the dates out there as quickly as possible. I visited with John Sullivan about getting it out there on the pulse. And uh, so we really want to uh, incorporate. We're going to make it a little longer than our normally three-day show, maybe not quite as long as, as some of the other breeds, but we put the dates out there so hopefully people could plan their summer around it. And uh, we just look for good things to come from it. Uh, we're going to incorporate a lot of things that you would see at a normal junior nationals, whether uh, from the rest of the breeds, but also we're going to put our own little spin on it as well. And uh, well, I'll tell you one thing that we started doing a couple of years ago at Battle of Cattle that, that I saw with the junior nationals they do. Uh, it's one of those things where when you fill out your entry form, you, you put on there where you uh, bought your calf from or where, who raised your calf or where you purchased your calf from. And so we do an outstanding breeder and we've always done that. So uh, that was well received in the beginning. I think people thought, oh, that's a little corny. But once we got into it, uh, a couple of years into it and announcing who, you know, who had the most points and we devised a little point system. And uh, those guys got pretty competitive in a hurry because there was a couple of them go, hey, I didn't know you were doing this. I'd have brought more cattle if I'd have known you were doing this. And, and so, you know how those guys are. They don't like yep. to lose. And so uh, that, that was pretty neat to see all those guys get competitive about that. So we want to bring that junior national field to the show steer world. And uh, we're excited to bring it and introduce it to everybody. So it's going to be in Abilene and the dates on it are July 21st through the 25th. Yes. And that'll incorporate some of the same things you guys have been working on, the two-man panel uh, facility that you're working or uh, familiar with. So I would expect that to be a, a very smoothly run show. No pressure or anything like that, but I would expect uh, people to really enjoy their experience. Yeah, after having a couple of shows there and large shows there too, yeah, we feel like every time that we've had a show there that there's things that we've tweaked on and worked on with the facility and stuff. So trying to make everybody's experience really good there. Let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about feeding show steers. You've fed a lot of them. Your family's been really successful. And it's been brought up actually on, on this podcast before Bagley brought it up. But I'll ask you, you know, in some circles, you have a reputation, you and your family have a reputation as being very good feeders. And I don't want to make you blush or anything. <laughs> but a lot of times we've heard that a lot of times those cattle have been value buys, like you're not going out there and buying high sellers and stuff. Is that true? And if it is, can you walk us through like that kind of that mindset to, you know, attack that kind of project? 
I guess so for us in the very beginning, once our boys started showing steers and I think uh, anybody that shows any livestock, you know, it can be costly at times. So you're trying to get the most bang for your buck. So for us being around livestock our whole life, uh, after about the first year, I I could kind of tell, I devised a system, I guess, uh, when I went to look at cattle and for our program, because there was things where our climate is and things that we could do nutrition wise and getting them across and enhancing them as far as growing hair or, or the things that our environment had that maybe other places didn't have. And then some of the things that, that we had to overcome as far as an environment as well. So when we looked at cattle, I kind of had a checklist of things that, that I liked on cattle. And so I would maybe t- pick one that was, I tried to get them as sound as I could, because that's just how I came from. And that's always what I tried to do. I would take them a nickel greener. I didn't have to have the bloomiest one that day. Uh, to me, they had to be skeletally built perfect as far as their top line and their underline. Uh, I would give up a little bit of muscle at times because I thought with nutrition and, and we were blessed in our area that we had big traps and we could grow some grass in them and they could kind of develop that away. So there was a checklist for us that always went through that cattle fit for our program, maybe better than they would for another program. And not everybody's, everybody's program's different. That's what I tell people that come up to me, go, Hey, you got these cattle turnout. I said, well, they fit our program really well. You know, we could always get good quality hay. We had grass out there, so we could always get a little extra rib shape in them. Uh, You know, I thought we had a good nutritional background. Uh, My dad was always very influential on when we were in the open and and the breeding cattle end. Uh, You know, there weren't as many feed companies out there as there is today. So we actually had to develop our own rations at times. We went to mills. So I learned at an early age how to develop rations. I studied nutrition on my own through my dad a lot. And so I I learned a lot about nutrition right away. And so being raised in that area, I always kind of knew that, hey, we could get away with feeding them this, uh, more oats and less corn in the hot times and and still uh, achieve the same goals. So those things that that I always had a checklist when I'd look at one. And then as I think, as you have kids, and I think most people, there were certain uh, AI sires or things like that, that we had more luck or more success with, or, or certain cattle that we could feed a little better in our area than others. So it was kind of a checklist. You know, when I go through somebody's sale or somebody's place, not saying those other cattle weren't good and they couldn't fit anybody else's environment good, but for my personal I didn't get hung up on the one that was going to bring the most money that day, unless that was one that I really, really liked and I thought would fit our program well. But I would maybe look down the trough a little bit further and maybe find one that I thought, hey, this one could be the sleeper of the bunch. He fits our program really well. And I think this is one that we could feed. And and the boys, I knew their their uh, style of showing uh, as they developed and got older. Uh, we had, you know, there was kinds that, that I thought they could show better than others. And so uh, we just kind of stuck to that. Is what kind of always, and I didn't venture off too far, you know, and it doesn't always work out. Even though you have a game plan, it still doesn't always work out. But that's kind of, we had that checklist. Hey, are they good looking? Are they sound? Do they think, do I think that every day we go out there and dump out a bucket, are we going to like them better the next day than we did the day before? And those were kind of the checklists we had moving forward. And we didn't get hung up on a type and kind always. And I really didn't worry about, you know, so many people are always worried about, well, who's judging this show or, or that show. My theory was, I've got to be the one that looks at them 365 days a year. So I need to probably like them first. And uh, then uh, hopefully the judge will like them because, you know, you know, no telling. I've judged enough shows. Uh, I don't think I think as a as a show judge, you kind of, yeah, maybe you have a certain type and kind in your mind, but uh, you kind of just judge what's thrown at you. So, um, you know, you never know what's going to be involved in that situation. So, you know, maybe ones that, you know, somebody else was said, oh, that one's not enough for us or whatever. I could maybe look at it and say, hey, I can make that one work, you know. And, and I'll tell you another thing. We liked them sound because we had big traps and we, we didn't mind exercising our cattle a little bit. And that comes from the old breeding cattle days. We had them big old bulls and to keep them in shape and heifers to keep from getting too fat. You know, we exercised them a lot. So I like to find cattle that could actually take the long haul as far as that extra sound is to, you know, to get that extra bloom and look in them and muscle shape by a little exercising. So that was also one of the criteria that I looked at in uh, selecting the cattle. I like what you said about picking cattle for specific judges. I mean, maybe this is, I thought it was just personal until you brought it up, but every time I've ever tried to buy one for someone specific in mind, other than myself, I just hated that calf for the rest of the days that I had them. You know, it's just, you end up just overthinking it too much, but I do know plenty of people that are good at it. I like what you said there, and I'm going to kind of just recap at least what my takeaway is, is 
you and your family introspectively almost like look in and say, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? You built a plan to go out and find cattle that fit your system. And then I'm assuming over time, you've tweaked that system and, hey, I'd like this or we're going to try this next time. But essentially, you, you started with a plan and you maybe weren't as much now that we've talked about it. It doesn't seem like you as much went out searching for value buys, and I'm using air quotes, as much as you just went looking for cattle that really fit the way you like to feed, the way you manage, and the climate that you're in. And you're very self-aware of what you guys are good at, and then some of the challenges that your climate and your situation also provide, and you're kind of protecting against those. Would that be accurate? Oh, that'd be very accurate, yes. And uh, that's kind of what we stuck to. And, and sometimes we'd venture off, and we'd see one, and, we, and you know, you'd nothing's a hundred percent. And so I look back at all the ones that we had success with, and those were the kind that I liked from the beginning. And I thought fit our program very well and things that our strengths were in our program, what we could do and certain things like that. And we stuck to that pretty good. I mean, you're, you're never going to win them all. And I, I don't care who you are and what you do, but I always thought we beat the odds at the end, sticking to our plan. And, uh, that's exactly what we did. And, uh, so, uh, you know, that's just kind of the mindset that we had through the whole thing. So building off this conversation, I've had this, and I don't know if I've actually ever said this on air, but I have this controversial theory, maybe it's not controversial, that people and folks that judge shows that have fed show steers evaluate cattle a little bit different than folks that haven't ever fed show steers. And that might be controversial. I mean, good cattle are good cattle, but I think through experience of feeding ones, you kind of learn a little more detail about what you do and you don't like. Can you speak on whether your experience, and you could prove me wrong right here, whether your experience feeding show steers for you know the majority of your lifetime has affected the way you select cattle? And then the second part of that question is, do you think we should give more chances to guys like you in the industry that sell a lot of cattle, feed a lot of cattle to judge more of these significant shows? Uh, yes, I, I will say this, feeding these cattle and then having an the opportunity to go sort them. And I'll, I'll simply say this, and, and I've told many judges this, and they agree, Mark Hogue in, in instance, that I think that it's nothing's easy about judging, don't get me wrong, but I do think it's easier to judge market animals at, their, at that fat steer show point than it is prospect shows. And I think prospect shows are very challenging to judge. And so, yes, for me personally, when I walk into a, a prospect show setting, I feel very comfortable because I respect and I understand different stages of their life and where they are and can kind of look at that animal and go, hey, I bet that one's just getting held right now or he's going through a growth spurt. You know, they now we've got these things bred so well that, boy, they'll maybe get muscled up really quick and maybe get a little tight moving. And then once they slow down and they develop, they grow into that muscle, then their structure comes around. So yes, for feeding animals and, and seeing those cattle in different stages of their life and knowing that, hey, at 800 pounds, this is kind of what they do. And at 1,000 pounds, this is what they do. And boy, at 1,100 pounds, they better start doing this or they'll never make it to 1,300. So yes, I do think that gives people like myself that have been around the industry and have shown, fed a lot of cattle, a distinct advantage. Uh, nothing against the other guys that are judging a lot of shows or uh, ladies and people that are judging a lot of shows that maybe haven't fed as many as, as people like myself. But I do think that uh, we do need a fair shake. And I'll, I'll say this, um, as a show manager, to jump out there and, and grab somebody that's maybe never judged a show before that has a lot of knowledge about it, it's kind of tough because you don't want to be the first one where I kind of took that and we, when we do all these battle cattle, it's like, hey, I want those guys that are that uh, have raised them and seen them from birth and all the way up to the mature stage, whether it be a steer or a heifer or a bull, because they all go through different stages of life. So uh, I encourage those people, you know, I've called a few of them, they're like, well, you know, I hadn't judged that many. And I said, well, I'm going to put you with somebody that that's really good. And I, and I said, I think it'll be a good fit. And they always have been. But I do think it gives us a little bit of distinct advantage uh, in that mindset. And I know that when I judge those prospect cattle, and I'll tell you this, when I started judging shows, I probably judged way more heifer shows than I did steer shows in the very beginning. For whatever reason, I'm not real sure. 
but I judged a lot of heifer shows. And so I probably, I looked at them a little bit different because we did grow up showing heifers and that whole, in is, in, uh, you know, breed and, and those heifers have changed a lot. But so looking at them, I, uh, I, I looked at them in a different way, probably than most people would too. And uh, took them maybe sometimes a little bit different than your average, just, you know, pick that one would be, but definitely in the prospect show setting, no doubt, I feel very comfortable at any setting and going on. And there'll be ones that sometimes I'll, I, you know, might stay a little further down in the class and aren't ready that particular day, but I always try to make a comment. Hey, uh, you know, if, the, if this one does this and this, this one could go around the whole class at the end of the day. And today just isn't there today to, to get around them. So I always have that in the back of my mind. So I do think guys like us or people like us that are in the industry, I think they need a, a shot to judge more. Yes, I do. Yeah, I really like your answer. I think you brought some more clarity to my thought process and, and explained. I'm on the same page with you. It's not the comment or the theory isn't disparaging towards anyone or anyone's ability, or but there's something about experience that sometimes you can't teach, right? Like when, hey, I've bought a kid, like especially, and I agree with you on the prospect deal is probably a little more discrepancy than fat steer shows because at fat steer shows, it's, it kind of is what it is. It's today. There's no projection. It's We're looking at them right now and this is the end of the line. But those prospect shows, you know, sometimes like, man, I've had one that has done this and I think he's going to come out of it or, boy, that's a red flag. I don't want anything to do with that. And sometimes I wonder if the struggle isn't, and maybe you could lend some experience to this because you've tried to schedule these judges, but some of these really intelligent folks that have that experience like you do have so many cattle spread out, sold everywhere that maybe there's some conflicts. And because it's different to me in breeding cattle where it's like, hey, just take your calf to a different show or you can't really do that with show steers. You know, you can't, if someone buys a calf, from you for Fort Worth, you can't be like, hey, sorry, you're gonna have to sit this one out so I can judge this show. Yeah. You know, I, I do always ask my judges, you know, I, I try to give them as much background of, of the show as we can and, and ask them if there is any conflict of interest or if they feel uncomfortable doing anything. I will tell you as a judge, I have judged uh, shows that their cattle were there that I did sell that they didn't know I was judging or I didn't know they were coming or, or vice versa. And, and I just placed them accordingly. I think you need to set that to the side and just place them. I mean, life goes on and um, you just got to do it as fair and honest as you possibly can. And, and uh, you know, I think we've all, I mean, you raise cattle and I've raised cattle and we've sold them and uh, we'll go walk through the barn and go, boy, I wish I had that one in my string or whatever. So, I mean, you, you got to recognize the ones that are really good. So sometimes there is conflict of interest. I, I think that's maybe more thought about and perceived by the people outside the ring than the guy maybe, or the people that are inside the ring. I think at the end of the day, I've always told people this, I think when you get caught up in the judging part of it, you're just trying to really do such a good job and you're so focused on everything and trying to get the right animal in the right position that I've told my wife this, that I couldn't even tell you what color shirt the kid was wearing or if it was a boy or a girl, because I was so concentrated and laid into you know what I was doing. Not that I didn't notice the person showing them and if they were doing a good job or not, but just, just that you're so intense and, and studying each and everything about it, making sure that you get it right. And then you got to go to the microphone and, and basically plead your case with what you, and, and, you know, make everybody else or try to make everybody else convinced why you did it the way you did it. So, you know, I know that's a conflict of interest with, with the show manager. Like, Oh man, if I got somebody like Wade Rogers to judge this show more, he sells a lot of cattle. But I think at the end of the day, these guys, well, we all want to do as good a job as anybody and we know what the industry needs and we need the, you know, the better cattle or do a good job. And, and so for respect out of the game and the industry, I think most of those people are going to do a fair and straight up and honest job as they can and how the chips fall, they fall. No, I think that's a very, very good point. Well, Shane, I appreciate your time today. I appreciate all the information you've provided to me and the listeners. Do you want to take a moment and, and kind of tell us what you have coming up? that the listeners should be aware of? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I'd like to talk a little bit about our show steer junior nationals coming up uh, July 21st through the uh, 25th in Abilene, Texas. I would look forward to everybody coming out and, and coming there. Uh, also just want to extend a big welcome to all the people from out of state. We know it's going to be in Abilene, Texas, but I'm looking forward to 
uh, people from all across the United States coming there, and uh, we want to show them what we got. And uh, looking forward to having the first show steer Junior Nationals and looking for a big hit and uh, just welcome everybody there with open arms. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Shane, thank you. We appreciate it. Well, folks, that's a wrap for this week. I would like to say thank you again one more time to Shane for taking the time out and for just a great conversation. I appreciated it. I'm sure you as a listener did as well. As always, uh, shootsidepodcast at gmail.com. If you have any topics, questions, uh, suggestions for this show, please send uh, most of your messages there. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Shootside Podcast is our handle at both of those locations. If you like what you're listening to and you like the product that we're putting out there, please give us a review on your favorite listening platform. We appreciate the support. If you want some merch, some swag, you can check out our merch store. There's a link on Facebook and Instagram on how you can get your shoot side swag. But again, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you guys next week.